DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the St. Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He's the author of several books, including Hidden Mountain Secret Garden, A Theological Contemplation of Prayer. In this series of conversations with Dr. Lillis, we reflect on the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. Her retreat, Heaven and Faith, is the source of our current reflection. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Anthony, thank you so much for coming back. Well, it's a delight to be with you, and I enjoy uh, talking about Elizabeth of the Trinity. She likes to have spiritual friends, and and once you become one of her spiritual friends, you find yourself kind of pulled into her mission, and, and her mission is to help people enter deep into prayer, to have a life-changing, life-transforming prayer. Well, we're taking her spiritual writing, which was offered as a retreat to her sister, which has been called Heaven and Faith. It is something that, by saying it was written for her sister, it was intended for those who live in the world, as well as those who may live in a Carmel or a convent or a monastery. Uh, Exactly. In writing it for her sister, she was also aware that she was kind of approaching the end of her life. In fact, she was dying even as she was writing this. She had Addison's disease, and she knew that uh, when she died, they prepare these circular letters that go out to all the Carmels. And she wanted to find ways of being able to share what God had, had done for her in her life to be able to share that with others for, to build them up. This retreat was written for her sister, but it was also written with an eye to her circular letter so that the other Carmels and other people outside of the Carmelite tradition might be able to be built up by the wonderful things God had done in her life. And it is a remarkable piece when you consider for that particular time, and again, we're we're talking about 1906, correct? That she incorporates the best of scripture the best of Pauline study, the best of the the mystical tradition. I mean, it really is a remarkable piece, isn't it? It, it is. Um, what even makes that more remarkable is that at, at that time, Catholics, by and large, did not have the whole Bible in the vernacular. Passages of Scripture were read at Mass, read in Latin, and uh, and then the priest would explain the passages of the scriptures to you, and sometimes there would be translation in that. Otherwise, the only access to the scriptures she had wasn't the whole Bible, but it was a list of Bible verses, and they were uh, kind of listed thematically so that you could pray over them. And what's amazed scripture scholars who've looked into her writings is that despite the fact she didn't have the whole letter of St. Paul to the Ephesians or the whole Gospel of John in front of her, somehow she really understood, penetrated the meaning of the verses that, that she did have access to. 
And I think what accounts for that is the Holy Spirit who inspired the sacred scriptures was living in her heart, inspiring her, helping her to discover the truth in the scriptures the authors of sacred scriptures were trying to convey. So the same Holy Spirit that, that worked to inspire the canon of the scriptures is at work in the hearts of those who pray. And they have ability to penetrate the text. And the church has acknowledged one of the ways to interpret the scriptures is to look at how the great saints and mystics look at different passages through the history of the church. That this is a legitimate form of scripture study, and more and more scholars are beginning to discover it. But Elizabeth really opens it up. Mm. Well, let's open up day three. And that beautiful first prayer. Oh, my goodness. So as we're reading it, there will be parts that strike you. And just as it strikes you, think about what God is saying to you. Let it pull you into deep prayer. This is the whole reason why she wrote it. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home in him. The Master once more expresses his desire to dwell in us. If anyone loves me. It is love that attracts, that draws God to his creatures. Not a sensible love, but that love strong as death that deep waters cannot quench. Because I love my Father, I do always the things that are pleasing to him. Thus spoke our Holy Master. And every soul who wants to live close to him must also live this maxim. The divine good pleasure must be its food, its daily bread. It must let itself be immolated by all the Father's wishes in the likeness of his adored Christ. Each incident, each event, each suffering, as well as each joy, is a sacrament which gives God to it. So it no longer makes a distinction between these things. It surmounts them, goes beyond them to rest in its master above all things. It exalts him high on the mountain of its heart, yes, higher than his gifts, his consolation, higher than the sweetness that descends from him. The property of love is never to seek self, to keep back nothing, but to give everything to the one it loves. Blessed the soul that loves in truth. The Lord has become its captive through love. This is a very rich passage, and it kind of reminds us of the first day of the retreat because it starts with the words of Jesus. And remember, the first day of the retreat began with Jesus' prayer to the Father the night before he died. His supreme wish, he asked the Father, I will that where I am, they also whom you have given me may be with me in order that they may behold my glory which you have given me because you have loved me before the creation of the world. And here, he's not addressing God the Father. Here, Jesus is addressing us. If Mm -hmm. anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home in him. Uh, And Elizabeth, what she focuses in on is this conditional statement. If anyone loves me, 
again, just like in that prayer to God the Father, Elizabeth sees in this admonition of Jesus to us, Jesus disclosing his heart. What does Jesus want? Jesus wants our love. He aches for our love. It attracts him. It is love that attracts. Jesus is attracted by our love. So how do we grow in deeper intimacy with God? And how do we grow in our faith? And the most important way to grow in our faith is by love. What does it mean to keep the word that is Jesus? Uh, The commandment of Jesus is that we love one another. It is love that attracts. And if we love one another, if we love God, love one another, it opens up our hearts so that God can dwell in us. And then she specifies, what kind of love is this? And she says, not a sensible love, but that love strong as death. Now, this is kind of a a beautiful thing to think about. This is another reference, and we saw a reference to this before, et dodim kala, or uh, what we translate in English as the canticle of canticles, or the song of songs. It's a love poem that is in the sacred scriptures and And all the great mystics throughout the history of the church, the ones who've gone deepest into prayer, they find in this love poem, uh, which celebrates the love of a man and woman, they find in this poem the love of God for the soul, the love of Christ for the church. She's referring to this poem then very specifically in this passage. She sees him as the bridegroom, and Jesus is asking for the love of his bride. And so what kind of love does Jesus want? An interesting part of that poem in the Hebrew, the word that is used in the beginning of the poem for love is dodim, which means it's an immature kind of restless love. The love that you, two people who are infatuated with each other or two people who have fallen in love with each other kind of get carried away by this love that uh, they do all kinds of crazy things for each other. And so the word dodim is used at the beginning of the poem, but at the end of the poem, the, the love has matured. And so in Hebrew, there's another word for mature love, love that knows what sacrifice is, love that is uh, settled and deep and wise and true. Uh, and that word for love in Hebrew is ahaba. Elizabeth, without having studied Hebrew, actually gets to the same distinction in the sentence, sensible love, or dodim, Uh, this love which is kind of superficial, that doesn't get us far enough into our relationship with the Lord. It only carries us so far. It might help us make a good start and get get us going in a good direction. But in order to grow into maturity, we need a deeper love, a love that knows sacrifice unto death. Pope Benedict wrote an encyclical, God is Love. And in this encyclical, he talks about Dodim and Ahaba and Eros and Agape. To help understand this distinction between sensible love and this deeper spiritual love that attracts God, it might be worth just reflecting on this just for the briefest moment. Mm-hmm. And in God, Eros and Agape are one. There were some Protestant thinkers in the early part of the 20th century, they proposed that 
eros love. Eros love is romantic love, the love that people have when the love that you find between a man and woman when they're we're headed towards marriage. It's the love that is consummated in the conjugal embrace. And what the Protestant theologians in the early part of the century thought, and a lot of Catholics were thinking this way too, was that eros love, that kind of romantic love, was a uh, was not really Christian. It was mm. kind of part of the part of our life of faith. It, the life of faith was something that enabled agapeic love. Agapeic love is different from eros love. is isn't romantic. Agapeic love isn't consumed with trying to be with the beloved and enjoy the beloved's presence. Agapeic love is about sacrifice, a sacrificing for the good of the other, and it's the kind of Love that we think of when we see people selflessly serving in soup kitchens or visiting nursing homes or going to the hospital or working with, with children who need more attention, people who spend their times trying to help families become stronger. They give so much of themselves and it seems like they're doing it for no other reason than that they want to share God's love. And there's something good and beautiful in archipelic love. But the Holy Father makes this observation. Agape, without arrows, is deadly. It's not really a mature kind of love. Because just to do something good for someone, but not really to want to have friendship in the Lord with them, not really to uh, want to enjoy their presence, but just to do something because it's the right thing to do. It's my obligation and I'm doing my act of charity. The Holy Father in his encyclical suggests that that's kind of immature. It's not really growing in love. In order for us to grow in love, agape needs to be infused with eros, and eros needs to be disciplined to agape. Undisciplined eros will destroy you, but eros, which is disciplined and grows into a sacrificial love, that makes us capable of a love that is strong as death. You yearn for the beloved, you want the very best for the beloved, you're willing to sacrifice everything for the beloved, and in that being able, willing, wanting to sacrifice everything for the beloved, for God, we lose ourselves. We lose all preoccupation with self, and in losing ourselves, losing our preoccupation with self, we find ourselves free to love, uh, free to completely give ourselves, and it's a great truth that we only discover the truth about ourselves by giving ourselves in love. It's this kind of love, this beyond the sensible love, beyond a gratifying kind of love that Elizabeth is pointing to in this passage. This is the kind of love that attracts God to the soul. Pope John Paul II wrote a poem called The Man of Will. And in this poem, he talks about three kinds of men. One kind of man is the man of the intellect, and the man of the intellect is all about cold calculation. He lives out of his head, and he never really gets involved with life. He's protected himself off uh, from the drama of life, and everything's kind of cold and half alive for him. And he says, that's not the way to live. And then he writes about the man of feelings. And the man of feelings allows himself to get carried away by his feelings and his passions. And he has no center and he loses his integrity, the the truth of who he is. And, and that kind of 
person isn't the way to live. But rather, he says, the way to live is to be a man of will. And he's talking about in this poem, the, the loving will. And he says, the decision to love is like the piston in an engine. It strikes over and over and over relentlessly. And when you're driven by that kind of decision to love in your life, you have a love that is strong as death. And Elizabeth is saying in this passage that those who choose to live by love, this kind of mature spiritual love, this love that's going to love come what come may in good times and bad and shadow and light, warmth and in cold. And no matter what, that love is going to be there. It's going to be faithful. It's going to be true. That kind of love draws God to it. The property of love is never to seek self, to keep back nothing but to give everything to the one it loves. Blessed the soul that loves in truth. The Lord has become its captive through love. She's writing this to her sister, her sister who's married. And in a way, in a certain way, she's suggesting by this reference that being true to love in our life being faithful in our love, joining our arrows to our agape, disciplining our arrows so that it's faithful and true and sacrificial, so that in us our arrows and agape become one just as they are one in God, that this draws God to the heart. In fact, you can't even do this if God wasn't already being drawn, already transforming us into love. So all of that is just in one sentence. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> It is. It really comes down to it, it, for me anyway, right to the heart of what's relationship. It's about having relationship with the other. Yes. And this is another very important feature that distinguishes Christian spirituality. Unlike other forms of spirituality, we believe that you have a real relationship with God, which is in the form of a friendship. And that's, she actually gets into this later on. The property of love is never to seek itself, to uh, keep nothing back, but to give everything to the one it loves. This, in friendship, there's a way in which the lover and the beloved are, uh, in order to enjoy a real friendship together, somehow they need to be equal. And God, in his great love, by the power of his grace, raises us up in a certain sense uh, to his level so that our love means something to him. His love for us ends up meaning so much more to for us. It, it becomes a transforming moment in our lives when we say yes to it, raise us up in that way. And that's where she's speaking about the mountain of the heart. Each incident, each event, each suffering, as well as each joy, is a sacrament which gives God to it. So it no longer makes a distinction between these things. It surmounts them, goes beyond them to rest in its master above all things. She's talked about all these deep places of the heart, these abysses where uh, love ought to be and isn't there. These absences of love we call an abyss of misery and that in the abyss of misery we find God's mercy. Vision of the heart is, is too small. They think it's a small place. But when God enters the heart, it, the heart becomes a vast wilderness. And it has these deep abysses, but it also has, and we see in this passage, it has these great mountains in it too. 
these places which reach up towards God, uh, these holy and noble places where the affections of our heart carry us up to him. And what she's saying is that when we have a mature love of God, when, when our love for God has gone before, beyond what is sensible, what is gratifying, what is merely consoling, when we love God not because of um, how God makes me feel or how God has helped me, but we love God because God is lovable and beautiful and wonderful in himself, and we let that goodness of God lead us to love him, we begin to be able to climb these mountains in our heart. And as we climb these mountains in our heart, nothing that happens to us can ever separate us from him. Everything that happens to us becomes just another occasion for us to get to know him in a deeper way. Have you ever heard of Cardinal Francis Xavier Nguyen Van Thuan? Oh, from Vietnam. Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the story about when he was put in prison? This was just after he was made the bishop of Saigon. He's appointed by Paul VI as Bishop of Saigon. And immediately after he was appointed bishop, about two or three weeks later, Saigon fell to the communists. And he was kind of placed in a house arrest until August. And then in August, they took him away to prison. He would spend the next 13 years in prison. Nine of those were spent in solitary confinement. He was uh, kind of tortured and treated brutally for most of the time. But at the very beginning of that captivity, uh, he had an encounter with the Lord that made all the difference, which transformed the prison as something uh, frustrating and holding him back and dehumanizing. It transformed the prison into a sacrament which gave him God. And, and that, that encounter was when he was complaining to the Lord when he was first in prison that he had all these pastoral initiatives. He was just beginning to make a seminary blossom for Saigon, and he had all these different initiatives to reach out to families to help strengthen their faith. And he said, and God, all my initiatives, all the things that I was trying to do, all the different ministries and, and works for you that I'd taken up, all of them now are falling apart and they're in utter ruins and failure and and how can you be content to let all these things that i've tried to do for you for god's people how could you be content to let them all fall apart and fail you know don't you care about these things and and so mm -hmm. it was with those kind of questions that he was tormenting himself and he heard while he was offering this prayer to the lord he heard the lord say to him francis savior why why do you torment yourself you must learn to distinguish between me and my works, and you must love me more than my works. I've called you here so that I can become the priority of your heart. He used words to that effect. Uh, he reports them slightly differently in different books, but, but that's basically what the Lord to, told him. And Francis Xavier, when he heard this from the Lord, when he realized that his being put into prison and the failure of everything he had taken up, this was not the last word, this was not the end of the story, but rather that the Lord was about a deeper work, something even more important. The Lord was about his relationship with him their love relationship together, that the Lord was more important than these works, and the Lord was jealously setting him aside for himself. This is when Francis Xavier, his heart was moved to make an, an act of trust. And he said, Lord, I'm not going to wait 
I'm not going to wait for the big opportunities to love you and to do right, uh, to do something spectacular and sensational in, uh, in my witness for you. Rather, I'm going to take the gift of this present moment and fill this present moment, which is all I have. I'm going to fill this present moment with love, as much love as I can. I'm going to fill it to the brim with love. By choosing to live by love, Francis Xavier discovered the same truth that Elizabeth of the Trinity is speaking about here, that when you look at life as uh, everything that happens is a sacrament that is giving you God, and you choose to receive that sacrament by filling every moment, every sacramental moment with as much love for God as you can, it draws God to you. God becomes captivated with you. He uh, never really wants to leave your presence, and he begins to do the most amazing things. In the, in the case of Francis Xavier, Cardinal Nguyen Van Tuan, every prison he went to, they had to keep on moving him frequently because when he got to a prison, their faith became strong. He found ways to edify uh, the other prisoners. And as their faith became strong, they began to serve each other uh, and they began to build each other up and to love one another. And the re-education the communists were hoping would happen in the prison camps wasn't happening. In fact, the opposite was happening. Even many of the guards were beginning to convert. So he, he turned communist re-education camps into schools of love wherever he went. And that's why they finally had to start putting him in solitary confinement. And at first they kept on rotating the guards because they thought that the more – if guards weren't exposed to him very long, that he wouldn't corrupt them. But even that – became uh, something of a failure because by rotating the guards, more and more of them became touched by the gospel and more and more of them were getting baptized. So they finally decided that they would only contaminate one guard towards the end of the years of his solitary confinement. He and this guard became friends and he was able to teach him the spiritual life. And, and see, do you see, mm-hmm. if we live each moment as a sacrament that gives us God, if we fill each moment with love, this love strongest death draws God, and things that you would think would be impossible become possible with God. Mm, remarkable. Well, I'm looking forward to diving into the second part of our conversation in the third day of Heaven and Faith. But in closing, any final thoughts? I think that blessed is the soul that loves in truth. The Lord has become its captive through love. And I think uh, a lot of people are are drawn to the idea of trying to love each other. But what does it mean to to love in truth? And this is something that requires prayer. I don't think we love each other in truth the way we ought to. We sometimes don't really like to deal with the difficult truths that need to be surrendered to God. We sometimes don't want to deal with the hostility towards God that lives in our own lives. Sometimes we don't want to with uh, the fact, oh, I prefer this person over, over that person, and in that preference, sometimes I treat the person whom I, I don't prefer unfairly. And so to love in truth, this is a, uh, a difficult challenge in the Christian life. But if we take that up, if we try to love in truth, we try to respect the truth that is in each person and find Christ in each person, then this captivates the heart of God and we discover a deeper intimacy with him. Beautiful. Anthony, thank you so much. Thank you. 
You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis.